Hey, it's Mishi. So before we begin this episode, I just wanted to ask you all to go to our site and fill out our listener survey. Okay, thanks so much, and here we go. It was nearly 2 a.m. when, on a rainy night a few weeks ago, thousands of fully clothed Israelis jumped into the shallow pool in Tel Aviv's Rabin Square. They were all splashing around, making loud chicken sounds and enthusiastically waving Israeli flags. And no, this wasn't, as you might think, some sort of alternative festival or acid rave. Not at all. It was, rather, a rare moment of national pride. Israel, you see, had just won the Eurovision. The biggest song competition in Europe. Back in Lisbon, Portugal, where the 2018 Eurovision took place, the victorious Neta Barzilai was busy receiving congratulatory phone calls from Bibi and liking supportive Instagram posts made by Wonder Woman. Meanwhile, folks around Israel gathered to celebrate something that had only happened three times before. Kapara alaych, everyone was yelling and tweeting. You made it. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So, we've reached part three of our mini-series, Mixtape, in which, you'll remember, we're telling the stories behind some of Israel's most iconic tunes. Stories that reflect the intricacies of Israeli society, and the complications that are inherent in it. We've already heard all about our national anthem, Hatikva, and all about the song that might as well be our national anthem, Yerushalayim Shel Zav. And today, in perfect timing with Neta's glorious Eurovision triumph, we continue our musical journey. On February 11th, 1978, 11 years after Shuli Natan's Yerushalayim Shel Zav exploded on the stage of Binyanei Oma in Jerusalem, a new star was born at Festival Hazemir Vapismon. He was skinny, had dark skin, a black curly fro, and a million dollar smile. His name was Izhar Cohen. All right, I'm Izhar Cohen. Uh, what do you want? My age, uh, my what uh, shoe size, what, what, what do you want me to say? You just open the internet, you write Izhar Cohen, and you read everything about me. <laughs> it's easier. But long before Izar had a Wikipedia page, long before he was an international sensation with millions of fans, he was a 27-year-old singer from Tel Aviv who, just like Shuli, was given the opportunity of a lifetime. I was so excited. My legs were shaking, you know. It was like to jump to the... Like to the main course, you know? I mean, I almost fainted that I will be part of the festival. And in 1978, believe it or not, 
the stakes were even higher than they had been a decade earlier, on the eve of the Six-Day War. In that year, uh, they decided that the winner of the Festival Azemer, the Israeli festival, will represent Israel in the Eurovision. The Eurovision is sort of like the Olympics of cheesy pop melodies. It was such a big deal here in Israel. 100% rating of everywhere. But in order to get there, Izar first had to win the local festival. And the song he sang, written by Eud Manor, was called Abanibi. Its refrain was in Sfata Bet, sort of like an Israeli ubi-dubi or pig Latin. How does Sfata Bet work? Well, you take a word like Ani. You put the letter B in the middle of the words, like Ani become, in B language, Abanibi, Ani. Ohev, Obo Hebev, Otach, you. And this is the, the song. I love you. Of course. In English. So, that might not seem like much of a winner. But lo and behold, Izar and his bet language came in first, became a national hit, and were headed to Paris to represent Israel on the continent's biggest stage. At the time, Izar likes to reminisce. We were a very small country that wanted to show the whole world, beside the wars and that we are the best fighters and soldiers, we wanted to show our culture to the world. And, uh, you know, everyone knew that Israel is Hava, Nagila, Hava, something Jewish, you know, Eastern European Jews. And uh, I came there and I made uh, like a change in the the way they look at us, because suddenly Israel was a bunny bee, oh boy, we were young, beautiful, active, uh, bringing new things to the world, and it was like a turning point. The entire nation was glued to its TV sets as Izar got up to sing. The song is called Abba. And when the flag of Israel was on the screen, people cried. Can you imagine? Cream trousers, the girls all in white. And this is a good vivacious song for Israel. Might do very well. Izhar and his backup troupe rocked it. And when the votes started pouring in, they were right up there, neck and neck with Belgium, France, and Monaco. But then, all of a sudden, the feed cut out. Can you believe? When I'm winning, it's ridiculous. See, the heads of the Israeli television hadn't expected Izhar to do so well. So they didn't purchase enough satellite time to actually air the whole competition. 
Those Israelis who were within range tuned into the Jordanian channel, only to see something pretty odd. They just covered the screen with flowers, and uh, I mean, it was so stupid. Just as soon as the Jordanian broadcasting execs realized that Israel could actually walk away with it, they cut their transmission and declared Belgium the winner. So in a world without internet, most Israelis went to sleep not knowing what had happened. It was only the following morning that they got the news. Izhar had won. And all over Europe, all over the world really, he became synonymous with Israel. I was a symbol of Israel. You know, the Misrad Achutz, the foreign ministry, uh, told me that I'm doing every day a work of 3,000 ambassadors, which it was true. The victory capped off an unusual run for Israel in the mid to late 70s. It began with the heroic raid on Antebbe and continued with the first Miss Universe, and then we were the champions of basketball, and a year later was the Eurovision. It was the most important thing on Earth. It was like earthquake. As per the Eurovision rules, the winner hosted the following year's competition, which, believe it or not, Israel won again. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we work with the talented musicians you hear accompanying our stories. In any event, it would take almost two decades before Israel came out on top once more. This time with Dana Internationale, the first transgender winner, and her flashy diva. And then another 20 years passed before Neta's feminist hymn, Toy, had everyone, including the Prime Minister, the President, and my four-year-old niece Shaizina, clucking like chickens. Look at me, at my beautiful creature. I don't care, but your mother's not creature. Rampampau. Rampampau. So, as you can tell, Israel and the Eurovision have an ongoing love affair. Check out this Eurovision medley by our very own mixtape band. Oh, 
No matter how many Israeli hits the Eurovision has produced over the years, everyone knows that it all began with one jumpy song, performed by one energetic singer. My Mona Lisa, it's a bunny bee. Everywhere I go, until my last day, it will be maybe after I go from here, this song will stay forever. <laughs> Probably, yes. Do you think that uh, the word a bunny bee will be on your grave? I don't know. Um, uh, look, I'm Yemenite. I live long even after you. Don't worry. <laughs> Today, Izar is sort of a national celebrity. Little kids whose parents weren't even born when he won the Eurovision show up at his jewelry store on Dizengoff Street in Tel Aviv and ask for his autograph. But back then, in 1978, it wasn't so obvious that a Yemenite singer would represent Israel abroad. Sure, we'd already had Shoshana Damari, and Izar himself was born in Tel Aviv, even his parents were born in Tel Aviv. But the music scene, much like the entire country at the time, was dominated by an Ashkenazi elite. Izar was welcome, as long as he agreed to fit in, as long as he sang songs written by Ashkenazi songwriters, and didn't sound too ethnic. I asked him about it, and, well, he didn't like that interpretation. No, 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 no. You are totally wrong. There is no Yemenite singer and, and Ashkenazi singer. This is all exclusive for my, my language, but it's bullshit. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm Israeli, real Israeli singer. I'm like a mixed salad, you know? Ashkenazi, Sephardi, doesn't matter. This is really a rubbish. But our story today is about someone for whom this did matter. Someone for whom this mattered a lot. Act One, The Flower of My Garden. Here's Yochai Meital. (laughs) 
You may never have heard the name Zohar Gov, but to Israelis, he's a kind of mix of Elvis Presley, Amy Winehouse, and Billie Holiday, all rolled into one. He changed the Israeli music scene forever. He also paid for it with his life. We could start with the angelic gift that thrust him into the national spotlight, or the demons that brought him crashing down, or even by wondering whether those angels and demons were really the same figures all along. But maybe the best place to start is simply his childhood. I was born in Rishon, the first out of ten children. We had a rough childhood. My parents didn't have money. These are verbatim quotes from recorded and print interviews with Zohar. We're in the late 60s, Nomi Shemir is basking in the glory of her golden song. Meir Ariel is back on his tractor in the kibbutz. And Zohar Argov, well, he's actually still Zohar Orkabi, a rowdy teenager growing up in a slum in the poorest neighborhood of Rishon LeZion. We lived in a shack in Shikun HaMizrach. My parents were brought here from Yemen. You know why? I'll tell you the truth. They didn't bring us here because we're Jews. They brought us over as cheap labor. That's how I see it. We tilled the land, we poured concrete. My father cleaned streets to bring home bread. We didn't grow up listening to concerts. Our concert was a tin canister. Zal's father was an abusive drunk who had spent his days at the local Khmara, the neighborhood bar. At 13, Zal dropped out of school and started working construction. At 14, he was arrested for robbery. But when he started singing, the whole neighborhood would gather around. And Zal was never shy about singing. At synagogue or school events, Zal was the community's go-to Zamir, their sparrow. He walked around with the aura of a star and the insatiable drive to make it in the world, to become a huge singer. He knew he had a gift, but he also knew that the local radio stations were not playing his kind of music. It was really strange to our ears. That's Tova Klinger. I was for 40 years a music editor at Kol Israel. Israeli public radio. The Oriental songs, they, they sounded to me like Arabic music. And we weren't used to Arabic music. The year was 1977. And the 22-year-old Zar thought, if you can't beat them, well, join them. Zal put out an LP with two songs in which he mimicked Ashkenazi singers like Arik Einstein and Shalom Chanoch, who, in turn, were mimicking music from the US and the UK. The Beatles, The Doors, etc. So, this is basically what a copy of a copy sounds like. Before the LP was released, Zal made one last-minute alteration. He changed his last name from Olkabi, a distinctly Yemenite name, to the Sabra-sounding Argov. 
With this freshly minted name on the cover, he sent his first record out to stations and record labels. It aired exactly once, on a late-night program called A Needle in a Record Stack. Following this total flop, he decided to return to his roots and his community. He performed in local clubs, weddings, bar mitzvahs, basically any gig he could find. Night after night, he collected fans. Before too long, Zal had an underground following. And that's what led him, in 1980, back into the studio. This time, to record the kind of songs that his crowd was going wild for. He really sang songs like he heard in his father's and his family synagogue, and uh, Arabic music that he heard at his home. But this independent, low-budget record didn't stand a chance in the Israeli music scene. Music editors like Tova were not slating those type of songs. Record labels were not signing contracts with Mizrahi singers. It was very difficult for us. I didn't hear Ulkumtum when I was young. <laughs> Still, there was an audience for this type of music, and the demand fueled a bustling alternative music scene. Its heart was Tel Aviv's central bus station. It was packed with stalls selling cassette tapes. This was the only place people could consume such music. And the LPs all put out, titled Elino, became a huge hit. Despite being completely ignored by mainstream labels, Zor became wildly popular. He was an underground sensation, a cassette singer, a title he didn't care for, to say the least. Look, the media can't completely ignore us. So they say, we'll give them a slot, Saturday evening, one hour of Mediterranean love. Let's make a ghetto, and make sure you write it as I'm telling you, yes? They play 10 Yemenite songs in a row, and then they say, they have a whole hour, what are they crying about? It's enough. I'm not willing to take this, it's a slap in the face. Why should my audience have to wait for Motzei Shabbat for the black people's music? It's a badge of shame on all of us. Being a niche star wasn't enough for Zohar. He wanted his voice to carry farther. He wanted to infiltrate the closed Ashkenazi world and become a national name. There was only one outlet available to him. The Oriental uh, Festival, what we call in Hebrew. Now, as you already heard, if you've been listening to our miniseries, the country had a big annual song competition. But Mizrahi music was excluded from this event. It had its own show, or as Zar might have called it, Ghetto, in the Oriental Festival. Zaw's previous attempts at infiltrating the mainstream had taught him that his talent alone wouldn't be enough to carry him to the top. He needed someone from the inside. Yeah. Enter Aviu Medina. I have been in that festival 10 times and I, I won 11 prizes. 
Aviu was the most distinguished songwriter in the Mizrahi scene. So naturally, people want my song because they know that my song is going to, to win. So Zal contacted Aviu and said, Hey, what time you are going to write for me a song to the festival? Aviu went to check out the young singer in a small club in Jaffa. It's called the uh, Abarvaz, Duck, Duck. Aviu thought Zal had a great voice, but was not mature enough. There were little things that bothered him. He used to, to put in many elements of uh, something that's not belong to the song. For example, Zal would sing this Yemenite song. Edodim. Edodim kala. There is no Wallach in the original. This really pissed off of you. Because he's not honoring the song. And if he's not honoring the song, the, the song will not honoring him. The way Avu saw it, Zal had great potential, but he lacked... The minimum of, uh, how you say, tarbut culture. He was very young, and I told him that he, he must get uh, more experience on the stage until he will be ready. In two years, I write for him, I told him. Two years later, as I promised him, Aviu called Zohar. The song is ready. You please come to hear the song and say, what do you think about it? The song, titled HaPerach Begani, The Flower of My Garden, is about two teenagers who are in love but can't summon the courage to tell it to each other. It was submitted and accepted. Now, the last thing left to do was to arrange the song for an orchestra. They called me from the festival and they say, you know, uh, uh, we are going to send you to Nancy, Nancy Brandes. And uh, at the beginning I thought it's, uh, it's a girl. I the Nancy. Like Nancy Sinatra. Nancy, Shomauti? Shomauti Nedar. This is the first time I met uh, a man called Nancy. Nancy was a new immigrant from Romania, where he had been a rock star. But being a classically trained musician, now in Israel, Nancy looked for work arranging music. And the strangest thing happened. So they're asking me to arrange a song for Zohar Argov. And until then, I had never even heard Mizrahi music in my life. I had no connection at all to that music. But a job is a job is a job. And Nancy said, sure. The next day, Aviu and Zal came over to his apartment in Tel Aviv to talk about the song. All of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. I see. I see these two really ugly people. I mean, they look like two crows. Because, look, I am used to European features. I'm used to Romanian. And I have a different aesthetic. What can I say? So Nancy opened the door and told them, Folks, I've already donated. I shut the door in their face. Aviu and Zal rang the bell again and suggested that there might be some kind of a misunderstanding. The embarrassed Nancy showed the two in, and Zal asked Nancy politely if he could get him a pot or a pan. So I said, look, friends, if you are hungry, we go downstairs, there's a good Turkish restaurant we can eat, and then get back to the music. Aviu explained that they needed the pan to get a beat going. Finally, pot in hand, Aviu and Zal proceeded to demonstrate the opening they had envisioned, with a Yemenite marwal. 
minute this prodigy, this 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 genius started singing, you forgot what he looked like. You just saw a beautiful prince in front of you. Because he sang like like a sparrow. Nancy took this song and the Yemenite Marwal and started incorporating different elements into it. Balkan elements, bit of Spanish influence. There's rock music in there. Classical music. All kinds of elements were mixed together, but no Eastern music. There's absolutely nothing Mizrahi in the arrangement, just so you know, because I knew nothing about Mizrahi music. A few weeks later, on Cholamued Pesach of 1982, at Binyane Auma in Jerusalem, Zohar put on his best white suit, planted himself on the stage like a lamppost, and started singing, totally still. He didn't have to move. His uh, voice was so expressive that he tells the whole story. He sang from his stomach, Zohar He sang from his heart. Haperach Begani won by a landslide. Haperach Begani broke the boundaries. Haperach Begani became really a, a big hit and was broadcasted also on what you call Reshet Gimel and Reshet Bet. Like any viral phenomenon, it's kind of hard to put your finger on what exactly made this song such a hit. Perhaps it was the poppy international vibe that Nancy's arrangement introduced. Maybe it was Zal's enigmatic voice, or perhaps the time was just right. Either way, a few months later, the Lebanon War broke out. Soldiers called in from the front line requesting the song over and over again. Zal was invited for interviews. In one of them, taped in front of a live audience, he was asked, Is there anything that characterizes your audience? Nothing, Zal replied. Then he added, One person likes Wagner, the other likes Elinor and can relate to it. You know who Wagner is? The skeptical interviewer responded. I've heard of him. Zohar was the first Mizrahi star to step onto the mainstream national stage. The next album he put out went platinum within a month selling over 300,000 copies. The headlines were calling him Zohar HaMelech, the king, and he lived up to that title. Today, I am king of the blacks. Without a doubt, there's a radio show called Haperach Begani. That's because of me. All the new Mizrahi radio slots are because of me. All the other Mizrahi singers are behind me. Zohar was living like a king as well. A penthouse in Givataim, a Mercedes, expensive clothes. Growing up, he never had any money. And now that he did, he just kept living the same way, spending whatever he had at the moment. In 1983, at the height of his success, Zohar was invited to the US and spent time performing at an Israeli-owned club in LA. 
And uh, when he get to the U.S. in Los Angeles, people gives him that drug called heroin, and he 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 tested, and he liked it. Like the perfect cliche of a self-destructive rock star, as soon as Zohar hit the top, he began his spiraling cascade downward. Zohar came back to Israel to a packed schedule of performances. But the previously hard-working singer started showing up late to gigs or not showing up at all. In the studio, he was sometimes so doped that he couldn't stand and had to be held up to the microphone. Still, the more Zohar deteriorated, the more the public loved and admired him. He could show up drugged to a club late at night, grab a microphone, and people would pack the place. In a radio interview, the late Uzi Chitman, another great Israeli songwriter who had worked with Zal, recalled coming over to his Givatayim penthouse and finding Zal passed out on the floor. The house was totally empty. And when I say empty, I mean empty. No rugs, no plants, no fridge. And then I asked him, Zohar, what is all this? Why is the house empty? And he gave me this answer. When the flower blossomed in my garden, this house was full. When the flower slightly wilted, everyone left me. Look, of course the Perach Begani killed him. He wants to be famous. He wants to be uh, beloved by people. But he, he was not ready for all of this. He was running away to, to the drugs, from people, from love, from duty. Zohar painstakingly worked his way from singing at neighborhood gatherings to bar mitzvahs, dubious hotel lobbies, and dingy nightclub gigs, all the way to Israel's top stage at Binyanei Uma. His song, Haperach Begani, instantly captivated the heart of the nation and propelled him to the status of a rock legend. But just five years later, he had reached rock bottom. Zohar was arrested for stealing a purse. He was interrogated and it was determined that he had nothing to do with the theft. As he was being released, he stole a pistol that was lying around on a desk at the police station. Following a manhunt, he was arrested with the gun in his possession, convicted and sent to prison. On the night of November 5th, 1987, Zohar started shouting and complaining. The guard, used to these type of withdrawal symptoms, ignored him. Early the next morning, he was found hanging in his cell. He was 32 years old. אז אמר זוהר ארגוב, התאבד לפנות בוקר. הוא תלה עצמו בתא המעצר בתחנת המשטרה בראשון לציון. It was a Friday morning, and the חברה קדישה rushed to prepare the body before Shabbat set in. 
Just a few hours later, thousands of fans gathered to accompany the king to his last resting spot. In a graveyard adjacent to Shikuna Mizrach, the Mizrahi slum in which Zohar had been born. He was interred just outside of the cemetery fence, as per Jewish custom in suicide cases. It was the perfect metaphor for his life and his legacy. Zohar opened the gates, yet remained outside. Yochai Meital. That story was produced together with Judah Kaufman. And you might have recognized the voice of our dubber, our dear Radio Lab friend, Robert Krulwich. Now, if that ending wasn't enough of a downer for you, there's something Yochai left out of his piece. You see, the rags to riches to rags version we just heard follows the most prevalent narrative of Zohar's life. He was a sparrow who flew too close to the sun. That's the account we grew up with, and that many Israelis still have in their minds when they think about Zohar. But there's another side to the story, and it's one we shouldn't ignore. Early on in his career, Zohar had been found guilty of rape, and sat in prison for a year. At the time of his death, yet another rape charge was pending. For years, this part of Zohar's bio has been suppressed. It didn't mesh well with his mythological image. There's no doubt that Zohar played a pivotal role in elevating Mizrahi culture in Israel. But he was also a convicted perpetrator of sexual assault. And as storytellers, journalists, and just members of society more broadly, I think we're still working through how, or if, we can separate art from artist. And with that, we've reached the end of part three of our mini-series. Join us next week for the final installment of Mixtape, which will also be our season three finale. We're going to meet the real musical trendsetters of the early days of the state, the military bands, and encounter one song that really riled up some of the IDF's top brass. I was very close to Gandhi, the head of the Central Command, and he didn't like this song. He thought it was defeatist. We'll also circle back to David Grossman, whom we met at the very start of the miniseries, and hear how one of Israel's most celebrated novelists ended up writing a hit hip-hop tune when I was stuck there in a traffic jam, I saw on the left uh, a Volvo of settlers. And there stood a guy, the driver, with a screwdriver, and he was peeling off the bumper stickers. And he peeled off the Rabin a murderer, Rabin a traitor, Rabin Rotzeach, Rabin Boged. And then suddenly it occurred to me how strong and effective bumper stickers that we all treated almost like a joke, but how effective they are in shaping public opinion, after all. So, while you wait in anticipation to know how Rabin's assassination got people rapping about the Messiah, 
you can catch up on the previous mixtape episodes, and all our past episodes, in both English and Hebrew, on our site, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. Zohar sang about the flower of his garden, and if we're a flower in your garden, please help us grow. You can do so by spreading the word, sharing episodes on social media, and, and this really works, by writing hopefully glowing reviews on iTunes. As always, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, simply drop us a line at sponsor at prx.org. Next episode will be the last of the season, and as such we want to spend some time over the summer learning about you, our listeners. That will allow us to understand what you like, what you don't like, what we should do more of, less of. So do us a big favor. Go to our site, israelstory.org, and fill out our short listener survey. It shouldn't take more than a few minutes and will really help us plan for season four. Thanks to Dani Dotan and Dalia Mevorach, the creators of the wonderful film trilogy The Sad and Foretold End of Zohar Argov. To Dalit Ofer, who advised us on all our musical selections for the miniseries. And to Sheila Lambert, Hanoch Piven, Nomi Schneider, Shlomo Meital, Esther Werdiger, and Wayne Hoffman. This mixtape miniseries is all based on our latest live show. Thanks to everyone who made this tour possible, and especially to the wonderful Bar Sananis, Chrissy Reinhardt, and Carlos Montero of Palm Beach, Florida, Yael Bernamo and John Mills Winkler in Princeton, New Jersey, and our dear friends at Amherst, Massachusetts, Valentina Komenko, Rachel Shai, and Rebecca Steinfeld. We're already planning our return with Mixtape in the fall, so if you'd like us to come perform in your community, contact us at livetour at israelstory.org. This episode was edited by Yochai Metal, recorded by Tony Hernandez at the Off Record Studios in New York, and mixed by the one and only Sela Weisblum. All the original music throughout the episode was written, arranged, and performed by our wonderful mixtape band, Dotan Mushanov and Ari Wenig, together with Ruth Danon, Eden Jamshid, and Roni Wagner-Schmidt. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our larger-than-ever staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Maya Kosover, Roi Gilron, Zev Levi, Ari Wenig, Hannah Barg, Rotem Tzin, Judah Kaufman, Abby Nushatz, Paula Lem, Yoshi Fields, and Joel Shupak. Whew! I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very soon with our season finale, Mixtape Part 4. Wallach, join us. So till then... Shalom, shalom, and yalla bye. me
Oh! 